I, I was just laughing because I'm like, what, so what can, what do you think the Cavs can do? Like, you know, and you're just like, yeah, I just think, here's what I think is going to happen. They're just going to get f***ed up. Like, <laughs> I, and, yeah, uh, I mean, like I was about to give, like, I was about to give like some analytical breakdown. Yeah, like some, nah, they're, yeah. they're screwed. <laughs> this is Hot Hand Theory. This is a podcast where we talk about the NBA with a focus on the New York Knicks and break things down from an analytical perspective. I am your co-host, XJ. As always, he is my brilliant co-host, Jeff. Jeff, so much happened in week one. I'm ready to talk ball. But first, how are you doing? How are things? Terrific. Couldn't be better. You know, um, I know some people are a little bit perturbed after the first week, especially after the first two games. You know, they played Boston really tough, very easily could have come away with a win, then looked great against Atlanta. So kind of to end the week on that note, I think probably left a sour taste in some people's mouth. But I think as we'll get into one and two is a totally normal result and things things are going to be fine in Nick's world, in my opinion. I mean, I totally agree. We'll, we'll, we'll speak in more detail about it. I will say like a really side thing, which is that I have this issue, um, which is that my fiance hates Dante DiVincenzo. And, <laughs> and uh, I need a big DiVincenzo game because literally every time she looks, so she'll like passively kind of like watch the game next to me and like she'll like read or do something else. But she's also kind of like taking in the game a little bit. And every time she looks at the screen, he's like, has a turnover. Yeah, he's missing an open three. And she's just like, who is this new guy that they got? Like, he's terrible. And I'm like, no, he's really good. Trust me. Like, he's really good. And then she also hates the fact that he replaced Obi in this way because she really liked Obi. He's like super nice guy. Like, you'll see all the clips of him. He's like talking to children and like talking to fans and like has all these nice moments. He seems so kind hearted. And then this number zero is just like missing everything and throwing the ball away. She's like, hates him. It's like really frustrating. <laughs> and I mean, I hope she listens to this podcast because she can find out that Dante actually famously hates children, you know? So like, that's just, it's another, it's another check, check against Steven Chenzo. Um, yeah, it's not going well. Yeah. I need, I need a big Dante. I, I have game. no inside sources there. I'm making that up. I'm not Dante. If you're listening, I do not mean that. <laughs> yeah. He, you're going to get an email from the Knicks uh, because I'm sure that they watch this podcast too. <laughs> they will uh, one day. Sometimes at some point they will. Um, but yeah, let's, let's, uh, let's dive into kind of what you uh, started to foreshadow. Uh, just a recap of the first three games, just kind of our general thoughts, anything we want to talk about as far as like the players, the team, obviously we're not going to have any, over you know disproportionate overreactions based on a three-game sample size but are there any takeaways or things that we want to keep our eyes on or anything that we notice that we want to discuss and uh yeah i mean i'll just start by saying right now obviously after three games um the knicks are currently 20th in the nba in offense uh 27th in effective field goal percentage fifth in offensive rebound percentage uh, and 10th in defense, including second in defensive rebounding percentage. So just a little bit of uh, context. Again, three games. I can't caveat it enough, but just to put it out there, kind of like where they are right now. Yeah. So uh, what are your what are your uh, kind of broad takeaways, Jeff? Um, so I have two areas that I want to focus on. Um, 
well, three. RJ Barrett's the easy one, but I'm going to save him because honestly, everybody's talked about him and like it's just an easy thing to talk about. Like, um, and we'll get to him. So the first, but the first two things I want to get to are Mitchell Robinson and Tom Thibodeau. Uh, I'm an optimist, even though people who know me probably from like Strickland Post games probably know me as like a doomsdayer. I, at, at my heart, at my core, I am an optimist. Um, so I'm going to lead off with Tom Thibodeau because I am not his biggest fan, as people know. I did not do not, I do not think that he is, or I did not think that he is a coach who can lead a team to a championship. I think he is a coach who gets you to a point. I think he raises the floor. He establishes a culture. He builds good habits. But ultimately, the Knicks were going to need a ceiling-raising coach. And is that possibly still true? Maybe. But those first three games were three of the best games I've ever seen him coach um, from an in-game standpoint. And three of the most encouraging games I've ever seen him coach. I loved his rotations. Um, We were talking about the Pelicans game, which is just like it's weird other thing. But if you look at the Hawks game, aside from the centers, the Knicks had seven guys play between 20 and 34 minutes. I just don't know if you can expect too much more from Tom Thibodeau. Like he's the way he likes to rotate and the way that's natural to him. That was, I would, I wouldn't have believed you if you said that happened at all in the season, nonetheless, game two of the regular season. Like I was blown away watching these rotations in the Hawks game. He played a bunch of different lineups. He tried a Brunson quickly, DiVincenzo trio, which is so, so, out of like just out of his comfort zone that is just not Tom Thibodeau he's letting the Josh Hart RJ Barrett front court thing get its minutes he, he's not you know completely closed off to that um he's trying different units he's emphasizing the team's depth and its versatility um yeah I just can't say enough and then the second thing about his coaching that I've really liked is he's already mixing in different offensive schemes um in a way that i think will be better for the team in the long run even if the early returns aren't wonderful he's using non-centers as screeners more than we've ever seen like we saw him uh we saw him introduce it in the playoffs last season when basically other teams were like yeah we're we don't care about these center setting screens you're gonna have to do something else and finally he was like okay josh hart uh RJ Barrett, even Emmanuel quickly sometimes in the Cavs series, you guys can go set screens. Now he has everyone setting screens. Like he, I would, I would be shocked if there's a player on the Knicks who hasn't set a ball screen yet, even Quinton Grimes. Like, I I just think that these are things you really, really want to see if you want Thibodeau, the marriage between this core group of players on the Knicks and Tom Thibodeau to work and to raise the ceiling. I just was so Weird thing to say because they started one and two, but I could not have been more impressed by Tom Thibodeau. One caveat, one, one. This is the only thing I'll say. On the off chance that anybody for the Knicks is listening to this, somebody sit him down, please, and just tell him that when Julius or when Julius Randle turns the ball over in the Hawks game and the Hawks go up 112 to 110, there's 20 seconds left, he's allowed to make a substitution. Jalen Brunson does not need to be on the court for that possession. It makes no sense at all. None whatsoever, because the Knicks had two timeouts. If the Knicks had no timeouts and there would have been no way to get Brunson back in the game after a Hawks basket, okay, you leave Brunson back in. But the Knicks were 
always calling timeout if the Hawks scored a basket. Always. They were always going to draw up a play. So you get Brunson. That's the easiest coaching decision in the world. I always say, like, I've been saying for years, like, if Thibodeau could just do this, and he's checked so many of the boxes. He's developed so, so much as a coach. If somebody could just help him realize that offense for defense and defense for offense subs matter and you can and can help you win at the margins, holy shit. Because, like, I saw Willie Green sub offense for defense and then defense back for offense at the end of the third quarter in the Pelicans game when Josh Hart threw the ball out of bounds. If Willie freaking Green can do it, I promise you Tom Thibodeau can do it. That's it. Sorry. I mean, I know this was supposed to be positive about Tibbs. That just drove me nuts. No, I, I, I mean, I think Tibbs does that so frequently with Brunson to the, like, to the extent that I think he likes Brunson out there defensively. I know that doesn't make sense to us, but I have to imagine it's not like a mistake. Like he's like forgetting like, oh yeah. Oh wait, I forgot to take Brunson out. Like I, I, I think it's like, I like Brunson out there for whatever reason he might say like, his intelligence, his leadership in some aspects. I'm not sure. Like, you know, obviously I know you wouldn't agree with it. I wouldn't agree with it, but like, I don't think it just feels like it's too often for it to be like a mistake. And um, so I'm not sure. Uh, that's just my view on it. <laughs> but that's, that's not, that's not an acceptable answer, right? Like that's, I don't care that there's logic behind it. Literally on a post game in the preseason, somebody tried to do this. And I was just like, I was just like, well, sure, but I could like hire a murderer to run a lemonade stand and like I could have I'm sure I could have some logic behind it and be like, oh, I think he's actually a people person. But like still, it's a murderer running a lemonade stand. It's it's going to fail from day one. Having yeah. one of the worst defenders in basketball. I don't care if there's something he likes about it. It's a bad decision. Stop doing it. How about answer 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 this for me? Would you rather know if you could just know if you could just give him truth serum and and actually know the true answer? Would you rather it be that it's a mistake, like he just is not paying attention and just forgets, or is it that he has some rationale for why he thinks it's the best move? Neither. I'd not, neither would be acceptable. What would be my, the other, I, my, what would be the other option that he's so locked into like the X's and O's aspect of it, that he just overlooks the rotation part of it. That, that, mean, would, that, me, that would, that would be, be acceptable. Like, <laughs> yeah, I agree, but I, I agree, but at least that would be an oversight. Like it would just be like, at least, at least he's proactively trying to do something else. Good. You know, like I would, I wouldn't say, Oh, you're fine, coach. Yeah, you don't have to care about the rotations. But that would at least be that would be the best case scenario for me about this this single decision. I think that's interesting because I think that just pulling out Brunson and and putting in somebody like quickly or or, or someone like that or even DiVincenzo, um, that would be like really low hanging fruit for other coaches, and so that that's what they would do immediately. It's like, oh, this is so easy. I can just hard do this. I can, too. But... You, I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah, no, you're good. Hart, Quickly, and DiVincenzo are three of their five best defenders. Yeah. They have three of their five best defenders on the bench as Jalen Brunson's <laughs> out there. And the Hawks got a dunk. Like, I know yeah. Mitch super, I know Mitch superhumaned it and adjusted it in the air, but it's not like it worked. It never works. And yeah. by the way, I have a really freakish memory for stuff like this. In the first year of Tibbs coaching, we lost a game to the Hawks, or we we either won in overtime or we ended up losing it. I have to look it up now. But one of the two... We played the Hawks and we um, were up three or two. Let's find it. Okay. We won the game. We won the game in overtime. Whoopee. But we were up. So we were up three with eight seconds left. 
and the Hawks went to a five-out offense, as they should, and Tibbs kept Nerlens Noel out there for rim protection, and <laughs> Nerlens Noel guy is the guy who gave up the three. He got he died on a screen because Nerlens Noel has never navigated a screen in his entire life, <laughs> and like, why should he? It's not Nerlens Noel's fault. Yeah. Why? So I, I just don't get how you don't learn. Like, I don't understand. I just... It's so frustrating. I just don't think like I I know I'm turning this into being I'm I'm forcing you to be pessimistic. So like everyone listening, it's it's not Jeff's fault. He does it, he's an optimist at heart. He doesn't want to be pessimistic right now. I, on the other hand, I am a pessimist. I am a hard, a staunch pessimist. I'm sorry. I know people don't like pessimism and I try to pretend I'm not, but like I gotta be real. I am a pessimist. I think about worst case scenarios. I think about how people fuck shit up and I'm like why are you doing that? Um, so, and I we didn't even mention uh, McBride, obviously, as, a, as an option to, to, to go in there as well. Um, but yeah, to, I, I hear what you're saying. I think that I largely agree with you. I think Tibbs has been, has made really great strides and, and, and done a lot of in-game stuff that I'm like, wow, that's really awesome. And, and I feel like he wouldn't have done that in years past. I will say, again, as the pessimist, I think there's something to like the rotations where it's like, he's just trying to figure out what works um, right now or what he believes in. And then once he does that, he just, that's just going to be locked in. I don't think there's going to be like this consistent flexibility for the rest of the season where it's like, we'll flow in and out of different like rotations, different lineups. Um, Guys will play like different minutes. I mean, one thing he does consistently, which is like he closes the game with the guys that he thinks are playing the best very often. Um, I think he'll always do that for the most part, but I think some of this is just like trial and error until he figure out, figures out what he likes. And then you'll see some, some, some more pretty, uh, pretty stiff r- rotations m- more than you've seen in the past, like a uh, couple or two, three games, but I think it's a great there, point. Yeah. Go ahead. Th- th- there wasn't trial and error in the past. That's like, true. Just, yeah. That's a good just, point. It, it was, it was just, <laughs> He yeah. decided like pretty very early that he knew what lineup was best and just drove it into the ground. Like our For most sure. played. Did did you know that Kemba Walker was in the Knicks most played lineup in 2021-2022 despite him <laughs> missing half the season? No, like, I didn't realize he, that. He was yeah. so sure that Kemba Walker was in the Knicks best five-man unit. Yeah. They just played like they, he played like that lineup played like half the game in the games Kemba played. That's just yeah, how wild. So, I mean, I do think this is, I, I do agree with you, but I, at least, at least when he does get to the bottom of it per se, and you know, he finds the rotations and the lineups he's most comfortable with, at least there will have been some like, okay, he tried this. He tried Grimes with the bench. Like, you know, like he's, he's at least somewhat trying. And I, I don't think we can ask too much more from them because at the end of the day, a tiger doesn't change his stripes, you know, like Tibbs is who yeah. he is. That's human nature. And in my opinion, he's making a concerted effort to go outside the box for him. And I appreciate that from him because I never thought it would happen. Totally. I think it's, that's a great, a great point and definitely something worth bringing up. Um, I mean, we can talk about RJ Barrett, who is the obvious positive story of the season so far. Um, we can talk about Julius Randle, who I do want to talk about, not from the standpoint of like, he's not making shots right now, but just like, I have a a little bit of different perspective than I think something that's, that I've heard that's been like kind of universally shared about Randle. Um, but I do want to keep it positive for now and stick with just like the RJ thing. I know a lot of people have talked about it so far. It's the obvious story. As I said, um, something that I've seen from him 
that's been really promising is, you know, obviously he's really excelled in transition. Um, I'm looking at the data right now. He's, he's currently one of the most efficient transition players in the league. 1.47 points per possession on 13 field goal attempts. Um, catch and shoot. He's actually six of 13 on catch and shoot three point attempts so far, 46%. Now, I don't think that that's sustainable, right? Like, I think that that's, that's more of a blip, but um, he, he does have, he is tied for with Brunson for the highest usage on the team, but it does feel like all of his shots are coming within the flow of the offense, which is what I love a lot. And what I love the most is that he's getting to the free throw line. He's averaging 8.2 free throw attempts per 100 so far, um, which is tremendous. And it's not only that, I think he has, I still think he has room to like go up from that, but he can definitely sustain that over the course of the season, how he gets into the paint, how he uses his body. He's been using his strength. Um, he's been finishing better. Like I remember in the Pelicans game, uh, obviously a rough kind of throwaway game, but he had a tough finish early in the game over Valanchunas. Um, he's cutting better. He's taking fewer and like really bad and difficult shots. Although he's, he's taken some and made them. So, I mean, for me, I'm always just looking at sustainability, right? Obviously it's a three game sample, but you know, he's, he's playing well. And, and, and we're talking about him coming off a, a, a very good FIBA performance coming off of a very good playoff performance. So it's like, it, it's, it's larger than the sample might make you seem, uh, make it seem. And, and it seems like a lot of things that are very sustainable aside from, in my opinion, the shooting and, uh, and, and, and some of the finishing inside, but I think his decision-making has improved a ton, which is like the biggest thing. So yeah. Anything you want to say about RJ? Like I said, it's, it's kind of the obvious point, but that, that, that has been the highlight of the Knicks season so far. Yeah. Um, I love that you use the word sustainability and I love that you went to his scoring because I wouldn't have covered his scoring, but it does matter. Like, as you said last week, RJ can be good on defense as in my opinion, he has been in three games. But when we talk about like his overall impact, there's probably a ceiling to his defensive impact due to his, due to just how his, uh, like his profile, his physical profile. Um, so he does need to be, if he's going to get to where some people think he can get to, it can't just be like, Oh, but his process is good. And his defense is, you know, like that's not going to carry the day for him. Like it does other players. Like it does like a Quentin Grimes, you know, Quentin Grimes, in almost like Quentin Grimes, we want him to shoot well. And if he's gonna, you know, if he's going to make a leap, he needs to make shots. But his floor is very high because of how he defends. Like, he, he has a very high impact floor. So scoring does matter for RJ and just, like, overall offensive impact. With that being said, I think he's done about as good a job as possible of doing the other things. So I think that one of the things I've paid a lot of attention to is RJ defending off the ball because he, he created a... Um, he basically set a standard of being a good on-ball defender when he got a matchup that he was locked into, you know? And I think that a lot of people forgot that there's a whole, there's a lot more that goes into defensive impact. And I think kind of RJ forgot. Like, I think RJ was like, oh, like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not putting a guy in jail. I'm not going one-on-one versus this guy. So like, okay, my job is done or I'm not as locked in. Yeah. Um, and, and, and just I to think, say, you, you spend much more time on off-ball defense than you do on-ball for most players, for, for all players pretty much. But yeah. Yep, absolutely. Um, 
And so I think that he's come into the season with a newfound focus. Uh, I've loved what I've seen from him off the ball. Like I've seen him make stunts, helps. He made a pre-rotation when he saw Jalen Brunson stunt unnecessarily. That was just like mind blowing to me. There was one play where Julius Randle and him were off ball guarding the two wings and Julius Randle was just doing this weird Julius Randle thing where he was just standing in no man's land. And so Drew Holiday, very, very smartly. So uh, uh, RJ was on Drew Holiday and Randle was supposed to be on Jalen Brown. But Julius Randle was just standing in the middle of the paint. He was nowhere near. And so Drew Holiday, very intelligently, rather than spacing with RJ near him, went and set a flare screen. And RJ Barrett anticipated the flare screen and beat him around it and then closed out on Jalen Brown for the, he turned an open corner three into a contested corner three and Jalen Brown missed. And I was like, Holy shit. Like that's, that was like an advanced read, like noticing his teammate was making a mistake and fixing it. That's like what you see Mitch quickly. Those two, that's it. Like, that's what you see those two do. That's, that's where they are in their money. I'm like, dude, if RJ Barrett is like making good decisions at the rim and he's efficient scoring and now he's doing this shit defensively, like, I don't know. I don't want to put a cap to the guy's ceiling. He's still young. You know, like he, he physically profiles as someone who's going to matter in this league. This has been a very encouraging first few games for RJ Barrett. And I think Knicks fans should be psyched about it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, I, again, like coming back to the sustainability point, like, is it something that RJ can maintain all over the course of a season? Absolutely. He can absolutely do it because it's just a matter of effort and focus. It's not a matter of like his ability or skill um, or, or, or talent at this point. Um, and a lot of the things that you talked about, Jeff, but I do think actually like sort of going against what I just said, which is interesting. I do think that focus like the ability to focus is like a skill um in a way so for instance someone who has like adhd for for instance is gonna like not have the skill and ability to to to, to focus right and obviously that's an extreme case uh, we might say but i do think it is a skill and i think that guys some guys are just able to like lock in and focus even if they're not in the heat of the action and some guys like we've seen like randall struggle a lot more if they're not you know if the other team is not getting them moving, if they're not engaged, if they're not the one guarding the guy with the ball, it's super hard for them to focus. And we see the same thing year after year um, for guys. And it's just like, Hey, can you just focus off ball? And it's like, clearly it's not that easy or else all uh, everybody would do it. Right. Like I don't, I think in some ways it is a skill. And if it is something that RJ has developed or is like, you know, figured out a way to unlock for himself and it's sustainable, I think it's, his ceilings like super, super high and we may see him reach it this year. Um, but I just need to see a little bit more to know if that's something that is sustainable for him. If that's something he can continue to do for 82 games, or if it's something that he's has like, you know, he's, he is very intentful early on the season. So we'll, we'll see. Um, I do think his, I do think his, I do think the way he's to flip it back to offense it's a really interesting balance that the Knicks are trying to, because in my opinion, what RJ does has the strongest correlation with team basketball when he's passing like this, to be clear, when he's passing like last season, not so much. Um, But when he's playing the way he's played these first three games, I think there's incentive to run more screen and rolls for him and to run more pistol. Because I think that like we talk about Jalen Brunson, we talk about Julius Randle. Julius Randle has physically what Jalen Brunson doesn't. 
And Jalen Brunson, from a skill perspective, has what Julius Randle doesn't. And if you could kind of like mesh them, that would be such a great like player, you know, in terms of collapsing defenses and creating advantages, which is what Tibbs wants you to do in his offense. And I don't think RJ Barrett has the skill that Jalen Brunson does. And he obviously doesn't have the size and athleticism that Julius Randle does, but he is an interesting hybrid in the sense of like, he is with the ball in his hands. He can get to places in my opinion, that even Julius Randle can't off the dribble. And when he collapses defenses and draws multiple defenders and he's passing the way he does, I think the Knicks are incentivized to do that more because it gets the ball in Grimes' hands more. Mitch gets more touches around the rim because he draw, you know, he he Mitch and RJ, RJ has more lob assist to Mitch than anybody does. Um, and to me, that puts Julius Randle and Jalen Brunson in a bit of an interesting spot because you're kind of asking two guys to are most comfortable with the ball in their hands to take a step back and to kind of slide it over to the negative part of the conversation. Obviously it's a small sample size. Obviously we're not, you know, overreacting, but I do think that is somewhat, some of what we're seeing in these first three games is two guys trying to adjust to RJ Barrett developing and needing the ball and his and deserving the ball in his hands more. And Jalen Brunson and Julius Randall kind of trying to figure out like, okay, what is our role on those possessions? That's really interesting because I think I think that Brunson's off-ball work has been excellent. I think his off-ball impact has been really great. And he's been one of the best players in the league in terms of spotting up off-ball. Um, I mean, he's been missing a bunch of twos that I think he normally makes. I, 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 I think for Brunson, it's just like he's just missing shots that he makes in a, in a lot of cases. But from three, he's hitting everything. Do you, do you know what Brunson's shooting from two? Off the top of my head, I don't know. Is it like 35% or something like that? Lower than that. Uh it's sub it's sub 30, I think. Yeah. He's not so yeah, he just, he, he's he's gonna he's gonna make more twos. <laughs> yeah, he's just missing a bunch of twos that and, and honestly, if you look back at his shots, they're not he's not taking bad shots. I mean, bad shots for another but I, but player. I think, but I'm, himself, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think I think you what you're hitting on is the crux of what I was getting to is that mm. I think if when Jalen Brunson's doing what he does, he has a higher individual ceiling than RJ Barrett, in my opinion. Um, and he's a great one-on-one player, but we've seen the limitations of him as a passer, as a playmaker for his teammates. And in my opinion, the, the Knicks offense has, it, it could help them to infuse some Jalen possessions, even when Jalen's going, some Jalen possessions with RJ possessions. And I guess that's kind of my point is that Jalen, in my opinion, has to kind of adjust to that. And I think that's kind of a tough adjustment. So, so do you think that, I mean, for right now, I think the balance is really good already though, I guess is my perspective. So they're tied, they're tied for usage. Obviously usage doesn't speak to playmaking. It's just how you use um, possessions with your shooting or turning the ball over. Um, but they're tied for usage. So I feel like Brunson really wouldn't have to do anything differently than how, what he's done already besides make the twos that he's missing, you know, like he's hitting the open threes when he's, when he's, when they're th- spraying it out to him. Um, so what, what do you think that he would need to do differently? I think that when you spent an entire season having the ball in your hands as much as Brunson did, that your rhythm gets affected when that gets cut back. And I think that's going to be the biggest adjustment for him is 
going more possessions between touches or between meaningful touches, you know, because he dribbles the ball up the court quite often when he's on the court. So, but I mean, if a lot of the time or if more of the time he's running pistol for RJ or the ball finds RJ's hands and he resets and runs pick and roll and Jalen goes, you know, to the corner. I do think that that is a change for him from last season. And I think that could explain some of the, out of rhythm efficiency numbers. That's really interesting because personally, like my personal view on basketball is that I don't love when there are three kind of ball dominant guys or guys who need the balls ball in their hands. And I value, and we kind of like alluded to this kind of conversation in our last up in our first episode. Um, I value guys who can make a huge impact on offense off the ball at an elite level more than I value guys who can create um, for themselves at an elite level. If I had to just like, obviously this is an apples to oranges comparison. So you can't really just compare directly depending on what the team needs. But if I had to take those two entities or those two players in a vacuum, I think that you're adding more value when you're able to do the stuff off ball, because there aren't a lot of guys who can do that. Like I can't, I can probably name like five guys who can, add this off ball elite value without touching it. And those guys are always going to be additive always, no matter what team they're on, no matter who they're playing with, they are going to add to the bottom line of the team. Now, if you have these guys that are really, really good on ball, there's a ton of teams where it's like, yeah, you're really, really good on ball. Guess what? The guy next to you, he's better than you on ball. So it's like not that great for you to like have the ball. So what can you do off the ball? Right. Um, And I do think Brunson's, actually molding into a really good off ball player because just for the spot up shooting, like he, his shooting is better than I thought it would be when he was on Dallas. Like he has ascended to me as a, as a catch and shoot spot up guy. Um, and I like Brunson in the corner. I like Brunson, like, you know, uh, at the wings um, above the break. But I think what you're saying, is, there's, there's a lot of validity to that. Like, can you cook in this way where you're just, you don't have the ball. You weren't really cooking all this time. And then I just give it to you and it's like, go, or do you need to get in that rhythm? You need to get to your dribble, to your hezzies, to your, to your um, little post-up pirouette moves. Like do you need to get in a rhythm to be able to make those consistently? Or can you just do it when it's called upon? You hadn't had, we hadn't had you do it in three or four possessions. Cause RJ's going, cause Randall's going. Can you just like, Hey Brunson, we need you to go score now. Can you do that with the same efficiency as you would if you were getting all of those shots? Like, I'm not sure that that has something to do with why he's missed shots. They seem to me like they're just rimming out. Like a lot of his shots are just like close. They're backing off, like hitting off back iron, uh, maybe a little short. I- I'm not sure that it's 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 related to rhythm, but it could be. So I think that's a great and interesting point. Yeah, and of course, there's just no way to know. You know, like there's there's no way to isolate for how in rhythm someone is because it's such an intangible aspect, you know? So, but I, I guess my greater point is that I hope because the offense is off to a slow start. You know, you look at our lineup data and you look at the, the, the Knicks, um, like the Knicks most played lineup, you know, is a small positive, but it's a small positive because the defense has been elite. Um, And that's encouraging, but I, I hope this, sort of more ball movement, more run through RJ. I hope it's given more of a chance, you know, and I hope we keep trying to, I hope Jalen keeps embracing. I do think he can shoot more, by the way. 
I didn't like some of like I thought in the Hawks game he was just firing away, but in the other two games I do think he was a bit too. Oh, I'm gonna pump fake and get into the lane. You know, like like how we how we don't really like when Quentin Grimes gets his one touch of the quarter and he uses it to pump fake and try and get into the lane. Like Jalen got a few kickouts where I thought he could have just fired away and I thought he was a little bit hesitant. And I do think, I I think a number of guys on the team are just figuring it out. You know, like I think on some level, Randall, like I'm a bit more worried about Randall than Brunson, to be honest. Um, And we can talk about that. I think quickly is, I mean, the, the panic mode doomsday in me like two days ago was like, should I text XJ and be like, should one of our segments just be like, do we have an, an Emmanuel quickly problem? You know, like that's it. Wow. I just, I did not like how he played in the last two games at all. And with me, like the thing, the reason I've always loved quickly is because he, like for last season, once, like, I don't know after once the rotation changed and Tibbs kind of figured out that like, okay, I can't jerk quickly's minutes around. He just has to play. Like I need him to play every game and quickly's minutes were consistent. I would be surprised if you could find a game where his process was bad, where you were just like, Oh, I don't like what he was doing out there. Like, sure. There were games where he missed shots, but quickly was so good last season because his process and his, and his impact not related to scoring were so consistent. And then he went on like a 30 game streak where he shot over 50% from the field in every game. Like, and then the scoring came along and obviously that's why he should have won six man of the year. I didn't love his process in either the Hawks or the Pelicans game. He took a number of shots where I was just like, dude, what are you doing? Like, I, I just, it was very unquickly. Like, and I know there are people who were like, Oh, actually he takes lots of 30 footers. He he took like five last season or something. He, the, the, the year one deep threes thing, and maybe that was some of that was occurring in year two. That was basically out of his system last season. And he was a very intelligent player um, who knew his limitations and knew how he best impacted the game and leveraged those things to be the best player he could when he was on the court. I didn't see that player in either the Hawks or the Pelicans game. And again, we're not going to draw big overall conclusions, but I do think it is something to monitor because like, look, he wanted, he saw, you know, Devin Vassell, he saw McDaniels, he saw these guys get paid this amount of money and his team wouldn't even pay him like four for a hundred probably. Like I assume he would have just taken four for a hundred. So like if they wouldn't have even given him that, I feel like it would be a very human thing for him to just be like, okay, well I had, you know, I've all these people in my corner telling me about how impactful I am and, I did it this way and that didn't get me paid. If anything, got me lowballed, you know, like, so I guess I'm going to try and be more like Jordan Poole. Like it, I feel like that would be a very human thing. Um, and by the way, these are things I'm XJ was riffing beforehand. So I kind of like he, he has these thoughts a little bit in my head, you know, comparing him, comparing how he played in the Hawks and Pelicans game to Jordan Poole, which I did think it was like his shot selection was not good. Um, and I would be very disappointed if he played out the rest of the season like this. I don't think it's going to happen, by the way. Everyone knows I'm a man quickly's biggest fan. I just think it's something to monitor. I think it's such an incredible point because I think I assumed coming into the season, quickly is not going to try to become something that he's not, you know, like in a, some kind of elite score, like play like his, his old partner in crime, Tyrese Maxey. Um, 
and, and play a little more like that because, you know, he knows that's not how he makes the biggest impact. He knows how he makes the biggest impact. It's all the small things that he does, the stuff that he does off ball, the stuff that he does on defense. Um, he has, I mean, I will say he has shown improvement in my opinion as a pick and roll ball handler this year, which is exciting. Like he's doing it more often. He's generating efficient offense out of it. His passing's been really good out of the pick and roll, which is, which has been amazing. Um, and he's also killing it from the mid range. He's been deadly from the mid range so far this season. I, I'm, I looked it up earlier. Um, he's shooting 12 of 22 from the mid range so far. Um, so that's, that's really incredible. The issue has been, in my opinion, like kind of what you touched on his shot selection from three and just some of his decision-making when he has the ball in his hands. And I'm worried about what you're worried about. Is he thinking, Hey, I've done all this to make this immense impact. I got the hot hand theory guys. Like those guys love me. Those guys like talk me up constantly and post about me ridiculous. Like, you know, they, they, they just talk me up to, to no end, but guess what? That got me <laughs> nothing <laughs> that didn't get me paid. Right. Like that probably got him an offer around like, you know, 16 or $18 million a year or something like that. Like that, that didn't get him anywhere. And we know, I mean, I, I know Maxie's going to get, either a max offer or pretty close to it. Poole got paid uh, a huge number for, for the impact that he provides. Um, so is he looking around at that and saying like, I can do that because the thing is, I think Manuel quickly believes he can score with Maxi. He can score with Poole. I, I think he believes that truly. And, and he came into the league known to be a score and, and, and projected to be more of the scoring type. So it's not like he's like, man, I can't do those things. Those guys are just like way more talented than me. Like he's probably thinking like I can do that and I can do this defensive stuff and I can do this stuff off ball. Like I'm this complete player who can do what they can do and a lot more. And maybe he feels like he needs to show it. And that's a concern to me. That's the concern to me. And I think that that is sad. It saddens me from the perspective of like, he can't be this guy who, or he feel maybe he feels like he can't be this guy who's having this tremendous impact on the game, tremendous impact on winning, but that doesn't get him paid. That doesn't, that's not in his best interest. It's in his best interest to be one of these chuckers, one of these guys who puts up a lot of shots and scores 30 points a game or, or, or 30 points per 75 possessions, let's say. And if that's how he feels, you know, that's just really unfortunate. And I think that the NBA and 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 the way that they make some of these decisions as far as like paying players, it's really facilitating that. Like you're really like GMs and teams, you're really facilitating that if the guys who you're offering these big contracts to are like Jordan Poole and and guys like that. And you're not to people who are like quietly having this tremendous impact like Emmanuel quickly. So I think that that's unfortunate. Hopefully this is just a blip. And um you know, I even think in the first game against the Celtics, he was doing some of that. He just was hitting those shots. He just wasn't in the Hawks and the uh, and the Pelicans game. So hopefully that's a blip. You did mention Julius Randle. I think that's the last guy that I wanted to talk about before we talked about the games for this upcoming week. Um, so Julius Randle, I'm not overly like panicked on Julius Randle or anything like that. Obviously three games. I'm going to caveat that every time. Um I will say I do want to challenge an idea that I've heard a lot. And I think it's pretty universally shared at this point, which is that Randall's amazing year last year is completely sustainable because of his shot diet. So he had a, a, a such an improved shot diet. And so a lot of what we saw from him last year, like he can do 
moving forward throughout the rest of his career. And I think it was true. I think this was true earlyish in the season. Like I, I remember talking about that on some Knicks film school podcasts, like his shot diet is completely overhauled. And there was some point I was looking at it and it was like, he took like zero mid range, like shots, like for like the first, like it was some point it was just not taking any middies. It was all at the rim. It was all short mid range. It was all threes and it was incredible. But then at some point, I think it stopped being true. Not the part about the shot diet, the part about his shot quality. So, um, I think if we look at Randall's actual shot quality from last year, so B-Ball Index, which does a tremendous job of quantifying all types of on-court phenomenon, they have his shot quality in the bottom four percentile in the league, in the bottom fourth percentile in the league when taken into consideration, not just the location of the shots, but the actual defense being played and the, the type of shot that he's taking and like player movement, right? Like obviously it's standstill shooting is going to be easier than than shooting on the move um and then breaking it down further if we look at his three-point shot quality that was in the bottom fifth percentile in the league his mid-range shot quality was in the bottom first percentile in the nba and his rim shot quality was in the bottom 10th percentile in the league so was randall's performance last year really sustainable or was he just making really tough shots from close to the basket last year uh and, and if we look at it through three games this year, Randall has almost literally the exact same shot diet as he did last year. So per clean the glass, last year he took 28% of his shots at the rim, 22% from short mid-range, 11% from long mid-range, and 40% from three. This year, 28% of his shots at the rim, 24% from short mid-range, 8% from long mid-range, and 40% from three. Like, obviously it's a small sample. It's the exact same shot diet this year a replica, like there's a minute difference is negligible. So I don't know, is it sustainable? Like we're talking about him. There's no difference between the types of shots that he took last year and that he's taking this year. He's not making them. Is it just that he's like off or is it that those are actually really difficult shots because of the defense that's being played. And he just made tough shots last year and he's not able going to be always able to make those at that rate. So that's my, that's my question that I'm, I'm posing to you, Jeff. It's so funny how like fanhood and results create a bias because those those stats shock me. Like just I I just like can think back on watching the games last season and knowing that where he took the shots from was so improved from the we here season. He was shooting more threes, he was shooting more at the rim. And I think I was so enamored with that and so happy about that development it just kept feeling like oh like he's just gonna make these forever like these are the good shots he's taking the right shots and i guess before i give a i give an in-depth answer i'm gonna swing it back to you and ask do you think that julius just isn't like processing fast enough to have these shots from the good spots be higher quality from a shot quality perspective? Like, is he just not operating quick enough? Cause he, you know, there are times rare by the way, but there are times when he catches the ball on the swing shoots in rhythm and he's wide open and it looks good. And you're like, why does he not do this more? And then there are times where he jabs and he, you know, he catches and he assesses and lets the defense catch up. I will say 
before I swing it back to you, when he gets to the rim, it is quite a frequent thing where you're like, man, it seemed like that was more difficult than it had to be. Cause he loves doing the adjust and readjust in midair thing rather than just going straight up to the basket. And you're like, dude, just use your size and strength. Like just go quick, use your size and strength. And like, there's no reason that RJ's layup profile should look so much easier than Julius Randall's. There's no reason, but it's because RJ isn't doing all these adjustments at the rim. When he gets into the paint, he goes straight up. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He knows like he he's crafty and he, he knows to go straight up. You can't, you know, do that. Um, so do you think it's just an overall processing issue or what do you think? Why do you think there's such a discrepancy between the shot mapping, which is good, and the actual shot quality, which is apparently terrible? Yeah, I I think you hit it. You hit it so much on the hail, uh, on the nail exactly what I was thinking, which is it is this adjusting and readjusting thing that he does when he gets deep into the paint where so many of his shots are taken on the way down. Like I, I feel like he's the NBA player who takes the most shots on the way down. Um, and that's because he, he hangs in the air and guys are defending him and he kind of like waits and he muscles it up. And he's in last year, he made so many of those. It was like, I remember feeling like last year, like, damn, that was a tough shot, but you know, it's close to the paint. So it's probably a good shot, right? Like a tough shot close to the paint is, is probably better than a, a easier shot further away, but not when a guy's like draped on you and you're shooting it on the way down. Like can he sustainably make that over the course of a season? He did last year. Can he sustainably make that over the course of multiple seasons? I guess we'll see as far as like the processing issue. I do think that that comes into play from the three point range. Um, he definitely gets the ball and holds and waits for the defense to catch up very often. And I think that that's why he, his shot quality from three was so low. But to me, that's like, I don't know if that's going to change because we see the same processing issue with, with just like basic swing passes where like Grimes is open in the corner and he gets the ball and it's just like, uh, wait, what am I supposed to do again? And then it's like, oh, wait, Grimes is open. It's like, no, he's not anymore. <laughs> he was. <laughs> he's not anymore. Um, so then he goes to the jab step and then we'll take a, a contested three a lot of the time. So. To me, I think the processing issue comes into play where it's like he wants to survey. Like his instinct is to survey and kind of like get the lay of the land and figure out the landscape and then make a decision as opposed to just get the ball and make a decision, like do the instinctive thing. And is that something that's changeable? I'm not sure. But I do think that that contributes to the the poor three-point shot quality. Again, like I said, just to reiterate that the the interior like mid range and and at the rim shot quality, I think comes from the fact that he he's like kind of bullying guys to the paint, and they're still on him. Like they're not like gone. It's not like he's getting into the paint and those guys disappeared. Like they're still there. Um, he's so strong, he can kind of like bully them and back them up. And when he goes up, they're going up with him. So either he's making it over tough contests, or um, you know, he's shooting it on the way down. Like he's doing things like that, that make those shots really difficult. So definitely the shot diet from the location has improved vastly, but those are still tough shots. And I, and I believe the data about, about, you know, that's coming out about the actual shot quality based on all these other factors. Yeah. So I have no choice, I guess, but to, agree with you that 
if the shot quality numbers are correct, it's unlikely he shoots as well as he did last season. Like that, I, I do agree with you that that's less sustainable than maybe it's given credit for. Um, but to spin it around and try and, you know, look at some Julius Randle positives, he is, he does seem to be embracing the fact that like, okay, I don't need to be a 25 point per game scorer. Um, and maybe his shot quality improves if defenses start to adjust the fact to the fact that he's looking to pass more than he's looking to score. And you know how they, like they talk about LeBron, like, Oh, turn LeBron to a scorer. You know, like if, if Julius, if Julius starts to become effective enough as a distributor and teams stop sending the doubles, they do, you know, that, that is a path to, um, artificially raising his efficiency. Um, even if he's, you know, not doing things as quickly as he should. And, uh, you know, he's just, his overall processing speed is low. I think that if he says to himself, okay, like Jalen and RJ are the two scorers in this lineup, I'm going to be more the distributor. That could be a way to raise his overall efficiency. I think that's absolutely true. It could be true. I do. I do think this is a perfect segue into like a question I wanted to ask you. Um, so I think another question I want to ask you. So I, I think that teams double team Randall pretty often that we see that happen, but I don't know why they're doing it. Um, Cause I think double teaming is a really new, like it's a, a complicated and nuanced strategy. Actually. It's not like so straightforward, right? Like, because whether it's a good strategy, it depends on who you double when you double like how you double, who's doing the doubling, who are you doubling off of, like all these factors need to be considered. So it's like kind of complicated. But in general, with Randall, I know there was some data going around about the Knicks scoring efficiency being like really high when Randall is doubled. I'm not sure how accurate those stats are just because there's like some funky stuff about what's considered a double, like hedges and other types of coverages, like on pick and rolls are considered doubles and other things. So I'm not super sure about what they're considering a double, but... um when a team doubles Randall, like let's say out of the high mid post, for example, I know there was that clip going around where LeBron was telling um, Le- LeBron was telling D'Angelo Russell, like, you know, get it to me in this in, in the high post because I can see everything, right? Like that's why I want to get it, not to not to look to score, but because I can see everything. And I don't think Randall's the same way. So like, I don't think teams are doubling because they're afraid of his one on one scoring. But I think that they feel like they can bait him into turnovers or strip him on one of his moves. So, like, for instance, New Orleans was doubling one pass away from Brunson, who is, like, I think at this point has shown he's, like, an elite catch-and-shoot three-point shooter. That feels like a crazy gamble. Like, they would not do that if it was LeBron. Like, obviously, LeBron's an outlier. But, you know, if it was, like, a, a guy who's known to be a great passer, you wouldn't double one pass away from a elite catch and shoot three point shooter. That's insane. Um, and, and when Randall does recognize the double, he does typically make a solid pass or an open guy. It's just like, how fast is he recognizing that doubles coming? And too many times he's getting stripped, like not looking towards the ball or like not anticipating the defense kind of like going to, that they're going to be there. Like the helper's going to be there and he'll like, kind of like 
you'll see he's like he he'll kind of dribble away and then he'll kind of like take his time and it's like dude you gotta know like the help is coming like the guy is shading he, he he's kind of jabbing he's like he's pretty much telegraphing that he's gonna come as soon as you put it on the floor but randall doesn't like recognize that so i don't know i i do you have a sense of like why teams are doubling him do you think it's because they're like he's such a threat offensively that we need to get it out of his hands or do you think they feel like there's something they can take advantage of with that process processing speed i think it's both as lame a cop out as that is i think that coaches have a natural bias against size advantages like i think you know you were saying earlier that you kind of look for the worst case scenario and guard against it I think there's a strong correlation between personality types who become head coaches and control freaks who guard against worst case scenarios. And a worst case scenario when Julius Randle has the ball is smaller defender can't stay in front of him. So he gets a layup. So I think naturally you're like, Oh, big guy with ball in hand, smaller guy on him. He needs help, you know? And like, I, I wish that didn't happen is, frequently as it did not not the julius randall i mean like across the league because like you know there will be times when like grimes divincenzo quickly even rj ha- has a one-on-one versus a bigger guy and tibbs like most coaches will have oh god we got to send a double he needs help and it's like what's the worst that could happen here like they always just end up taking like some fade away too that I totally I totally agree with this yeah go ahead <laughs> you're you're probably happy with you know and it's like I don't understand like it's like they for a moment forget what the shots you don't want to give up are you know and it's like Kristaps Porzingis taking a 15 footer regardless of the size advantage is not a shot that you really care about. Like in today's league, live with that. You're taking, yeah, you live with you're that. taking a Kristaps Porzingis 15 footer with RJ Barrett on him over a kick out to an open three point shooter every single time in, you know, and I know, I know what Tibbs would say. Tibbs would say, well, it doesn't have to be between those things. If we rotate, we can take away the kick out too. But like, these guys are so good these days. Like that's not, that's not realistic long-term, you know? And so if the first double is what gets you in trouble, sometimes you just have to live with the best of the worst options. And in my opinion, a lot of times the best of the worst options is just letting the size advantage take its course. Like when Mark Jackson was coach of the Warriors and he would be like, Oh man, rookie Harrison Barnes has a matchup I like. Let's dump it to him in the mid post. If I was an opposing coach, I'd be like, uh, let's just leave this guy on Harrison Barnes yeah. the whole game. <laughs> like, what is happening just right now? They am in doing that all game. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, Coach Jackson, you've got the mismatch. Like, don't <laughs> give it to Steph Curry. Like, I don't, I don't get it. Um, it's um, wild to me. So I I I think there's a bias in play. But I also do think that they that the book is out on Julius Randle right now. And I think that teams know if you send creative enough doubles, he's not going to notice them. Um, and I mean, like, God, like some of his turnovers, turnovers in the Pelicans game weren't even on. He didn't even have to make advanced reads. They were just careless, like not paying attention type stuff. And the fact that those are still an issue is honestly a problem because I don't want to jinx the season's team, I you know, or anything, but I do think that this team should be beyond regular season, you know, the state. Like, they, I'm not saying they don't care about the regular season. They absolutely care about the regular season. But I do think that the ceiling of the playoffs needs to take a bigger 
um, level of importance to this team. And if Julius Randle is going to keep, you know, processing slow, is going to keep not recognizing doubles and not being able to make these relatively simple reads, those warts are going to be exposed in the postseason all the time because coaches, when they're preparing for a series, they have more time to try to exploit mistakes and exploit weaknesses. And that is a glaring weakness. Yeah, I, I love everything you said because I largely agree with it. Um, like I'm not a fan of doubling really like in most scenarios. Like I don't love doubling to mitigate a disadvantage, but I really like doubling to generate proactively an advantage. So I think if you're doubling to take advantage of someone like Julius Randle, who is not going to notice it and you can you feel like you can strip him, you can like kind of throw him off. Yeah, sometimes he's going to jump in the air and then notice that Grimes is wide open in the corner and fire it out, fire out an amazing pass to him, and Grimes is going to hit the three. Like, that's going to happen sometimes. And other times, he's not going to realize that guy's there, and he's going to get stripped, and it's going to lead to a fast break for, for, you know, for your team. So I like it from the standpoint of generating advantages for your team. I don't like it from the standpoint of, like, oh, man, Julius is too big. Like, this guy, he's going to just bully this guy and get him to the paint. Like, we see, I mean, obviously, Julius... Um, uh holiday is an outlier drew holiday is an outlier but drew holiday can guard julius randall like and within the team concept um we've seen alex caruso can guard julius randall within the team concept it's not just like well this guy's small and randall's big so he's just gonna dominate him like that doesn't really happen um it's gonna be a fight and and yeah maybe he might shoot like better than average efficiency or maybe a little less than average efficiency like it's not gonna be it's not clear what's gonna happen um so yeah, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of the doubling thing from the opponent standpoint, but I think if Randall shows that he's not going to be taken advantage of that way and he just continues to make the right play, the simple pass, the simple read, th- those doubles I think are going to stop actually. Um even though the the data shows that Randall like generated efficient offense from uh from the Knicks standpoint when he was doubled, I'm just not sure about what what that means or like um what the data is marking as, as considering a double. So I I can't really be confident on that. I know like looking at the film and stuff, like it doesn't look good. It looks like a lot of times he's just like getting stripped pretty easily and just throws the ball away. Um, So, so yeah, I I, I think that's a great point. That's, that's a helpful and thoughtful answer to kind of like what I was thinking about. If you have anything else you want to say about this um, for sure, jump in. Um, otherwise, I just want to, yeah. uh, before we move on to the three games, sure. I just want to give Mitch a shout out. Um, we haven't talked about him at all. Yeah. And everyone correctly is praising RJ. I think you could actually make the argument that Mitch has been through three full games, the best player on the team, most impactful player on the team. Four years, $60 million. Like, get with it, people. This is a joke. This is, un- it's unbelievable. One of the best value role- contracts in the NBA. It's yeah, it's I don't even think it's close. Like given what there is no other player in the entire league making all even up it all up it. Find me a guy making $20 million or less in the entire NBA who has schemes on both sides of the ball built around his strengths. There's one he is him and Mitchell Robinson in his role on the Knicks is ignoring contracts one of the like 50 most impactful players in the NBA. Um, 
And when you bring in the when you when you throw in the fact that he's making fifteen million dollars a year, it's a joke. It's it's the best per dollar contract in the NBA on a descending on a descending contract. He's going to make less next year. (laughs) It's insane. He um, he's one of three players in the NBA. Like this is kind of basic. One of three players in the NBA averaging over two steals and two blocks in the league. He got ten offensive rebounds against the Pelicans. Ten offensive rebounds in a single game he's creating extra possessions he's creating on on, off the offensive glass he's creating transition opportunities with turnovers and blocks he's a one-man interior defense he does everything i know he's not the most traditionally sound player i know you know people want him to just stop trying to make him something he isn't and appreciate what he is because he is one of the most important players on this team and one of the best, if not the best values in the league. Yeah, that's extremely well said. I don't have a ton to add other than I co-signed that. Uh, Mitchell Robinson leads the league in contested offensive rebound. It rebounds per game, um, dominating the offensive boards, dominating the defensive boards, playing amazing defense uh, is a huge positive impact whenever he's in the game. So yeah, totally co-signed that. And I'm glad that you brought him up to shout him out. Let us shift gears into pre pre uh, previewing the upcoming week. Um, we're gonna preview the upcoming week of games. Which for this one, we're gonna talk about four games against three opponents. The Knicks play the Cavs twice on a home and home. Then the Bucks on Friday. Then the Clippers on Monday. So we'll talk about that game since it'll happen before the next podcast drops on Tuesday. Let's start with the Cavaliers. Um, I think that we're there's some early reporting that that is just coming out that is saying that Garland and Allen are expected to miss the next uh, the the first game against the Knicks. Um, did you, did did you were you going to say something? And about? Donovan Mitchell is questionable. And Donovan Mitchell is questionable. I think we probably assume that Mitchell is going to play, but I I'm not sure what they're going to do. It's it's a it's a home and home. Um, so who knows how they're going to play it. They may play two of those guys one game and two of those guys the other game. But I, I, I think for, for, for the sake of the conversation, I'm assuming that Mitchell's going to play. And um, Garland and Allen are at least going to miss one game. So I don't know. Uh, I mean, we can talk about the Knicks playoff punching bag, the Cleveland Cavs. I mean, the Cavs are one and two. Not much to talk about with what they've done so far. Obviously, like we were just talking about some injuries. Mitchell Garland and Allen have all all missed their most recent game against the Pacers. Garland has missed the last two games. Um, yeah, any immediately immediate thoughts from you, Jeff, about the Cavs? My first immediate thought is that with Garland and Allen out, one and one needs to be the floor. Like that, need they can't do worse than one and one in these two games. I think that if they come out of this and somehow like Donovan Mitchell leads them to back-to-back wins on back, like it's not panic time, but sitting at one in four after that with the Cavs missing two of their four best players, it would be not good. The vibe and the Bucks and Clippers good. are the next two games after the that. Bucks and Clippers <laughs> on par. And I think two and O is a very realistic outcome. Cause look, I, I'm not, you know, the Cavs are built around these four players. I loved the Struess edition this offseason. Struess is shooting more catch and shoot threes than anybody in the league so far this season. And he's shooting like almost 50% on them. Perfect fit. Perfect fit at small forward than them. Um, but Donovan Mitchell, Evan Mobley, and Max Struess should not beat this Knicks team. The, the Knicks should be able to take care of business. 
Um, they have nobody to keep Mitchell Robinson off the glass. Like Jared Allen is their best answer. I know he didn't do that in the playoffs last year, but he's still the best answer that the Cavs have. And Mitchell Robinson should just continue to have his way against Evan Mobley um, on both ends, by the way, because um, Robinson's ability, what Robinson did to Evan Mobley on the short roll in the playoffs last season, I bet he still has nightmares about that. Like that was, I think, I think Evan Mobley was something like two of 14 in the series shooting on the short roll. He just, could not decide what he was going to do against Mitch attacking those one, those two on ones. And Mitchell Robinson was just, he was there every single time. Um, yeah, those are my, those are my early thoughts on this. I'll swing it back to you. So I guess I'm just like, uh, yeah, I'd love to have more of a conversation on this. Cause I don't have a ton of thoughts about the Cavs right now. Like, obviously my thought is, Donovan Mitchell is playing in the two games that he's played so far. Obviously, caveat two games. He's playing at an MVP level in those two games, like incredibly efficient, solid defensively. Um, I think when Garland is out, they rely on him probably a little too much for playmaking as opposed to just kind of like being in his flow and scoring. Um, But Mitchell is Mitchell. He's going to be an all-NBA level guy. Are the Cavs going to play... Evan Mobley as center against Mitchell Robinson. I have to think that 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 must be their only option, but that feels like Mitch is going to completely dominate this game. Do do you have any thoughts on that because I can't imagine just running Mobley out there alongside I don't know Dean Wade as his four or Max Struess as his four and just thinking it's going to be okay. Like I got to imagine Tristan Thompson's going to be playing some minutes uh next to Mobley. I don't, I don't think they, they, they'd be okay with that. So here's what I think the most likely outcome is. And this is assuming Garland and Allen are out for both games. Yeah. I think that Mitch just destroys their starting lineup on Tuesday. Like I think <laughs> I, 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 no, I am being serious. Like I think he just, I no, think it's he just, just funny. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. I think, I think he just dismantles them. Um, I think they try to do because here's the thing. They the Evan Mobley is not a credible stretch center. Like, and I'm sure now he'll no. like run good. He'll, so there's no they can just stick Mitch on him, and Dean Wade is just a power forward. Like that that's a four plus one, and that's where Mitchell Robinson thrives defensively. Absolutely. So they're going to be a small four plus one where Mitchell Robinson will be in his comfort zone defensively, and just nobody can keep him off the boards. So I think he's going to absolutely destroy them. And I think J.B. Biggerstaff will play Tristan Thompson minutes on Wednesday. I think he's going to try. He's going to try the Dean Wade, Gorgie, and Yang rotation. Uh, and I think either in the second half of Tuesday or Wednesday, he'll introduce Damian Jones or Tristan Thompson as a quote-unquote answer. I would like trust Tristan Thompson more than Damian Jones. I agree. I know this sounds weird to say. Um, I'm sure... I, I think Damian Jones is actually ahead of Thompson on the depth chart. I could be wrong about that, but a guy like Thompson, who's been around the block and like, it just feels like I, I'm not, uh, he's, he can't stop Mitchell Robinson, but I do think that he would be able to like annoy Mitchell Robinson. If that makes sense. I, I don't, I, that's totally a feel opinion, but I would just try, if I was bigger staff, I would trust Tristan Thompson more than Jones. 
No, I agree with that. I, I, I actually feel the same way. And, and Tristan Thompson has played really well in like, you know, a few minutes, obviously, so far on the season. Like, I think he's been in one game and played like 10 minutes or something like that. But he, he was solid. So I think he can hold up. Um, I I was just laughing because I'm like, what? so what, can, what do you think the Cavs can do? Like, you know, and you're just like, yeah, I just think here's what I think is going to happen. They're just going to get fucked up. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, and, yeah, uh, I mean, like i was about to give like i was about to give like some analytical breakdown yeah, or like some, yeah, nah, they're yeah. they're screwed <laughs> which uh it's funny but i agree with you like i don't i don't really see the answer like you said if it's going to be a four plus one i i would let mobley shoot as many threes as he wants if that's what he wants to do um but if you're going to have Dean Wade at the four and Mobley at the five, like I just going to get bullied. And I mean, Jared, we saw Jared Allen get bullied in the, in the playoffs. Mobley is not going to hold up to Mitch's punishment around the glass both ways. So I, to me, I, I maybe this feels hyperbolic. I think that the Knicks have to win both of these games. You have the Bucks and the Clippers coming up and we'll talk about those games in a second, but those are going to be tough games no matter what. I think they have to win both of these games. They started off the season one and two. You you go one and one against these two teams or, or against the Cavs. You're talking about one and three, and then you could potentially drop those other two. We're going to start the season one and five? I I, I, Wait, I don't know. No, no. That's how it would happen if they split, though. They would be two and four. But I mean, two, I, two, I, sorry, two and five, I, I'm saying. Two and five. Um, they would be two and... Two and four. Oh, oh you're saying... No, if they, you then, lose the other two games. If you if lose, you lose other the other two, two games, yeah, yeah, my yeah, bad. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, this is, this is we're math guys, guys. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like, I, I don't know. I just feel like they really, for a morale standpoint, from a um, momentum standpoint, I do think that they need to win both of these games. If both Jarrett Allen and Darius Garland are out for both of those games, maybe Donovan can play well enough that he lifts them to victory in one, but that's the only acceptable way to lose, in my opinion. The only acceptable way to lose one of those games is like Mitchell just has like an MVP-level performance, and it's just like, damn, Donovan just got us. But I don't think you can lose like in a normal way with your Evan Mobley at the five lineup because Hardenstein is going to give him problems as well. Like Hardenstein is extremely physical. Um, And... And then you're talking Damian Jones playing minutes at the five, Tristan Thompson playing minutes. I I just you, you have to dominate those guys on the boards, and and I think even if the Knicks don't shoot particularly well, um, I think that they should still win those games based on the number of extra possessions that they're going to get. Yeah, I mean they they wrote the the playbook last postseason. The Knicks offense was not good, and. <laughs> I've seen so many Cavs fans talk about like, oh, if the Cavs just hit threes, dude, they hit like 10 more threes in that series than the Knicks did. And it wasn't close. The Knicks didn't win that series because they ran better from three. They won that series because they absolutely dominated the Cavaliers in every other aspect, but shooting. Um, I think I, I, I did the math uh, for an article I wrote. Uh, I think the Knicks in the series created five games. I think they created 48 more possessions through turnovers and offensive rebounds than the Cavs. So they were like plus 48 in possessions created. Um which is I don't know how you overcome that. So like no, you can't overcome that. That's too many that's too many possessions. Now from an X's and O standpoint, um I'm going to throw this back to you. One thing I do think that the Cavs did really well and the Heat took this to another level, they couldn't keep Mitch off the glass, but they did 
pressure the Knicks ball handlers more and not let the Knicks isolate as much. The Knicks have been very sloppy through three games. Very sloppy. Um, Lots of turnovers everywhere, which again, in my opinion, is part of the program and a necessary step back if they're going to try and infuse a higher ceiling offense. I think that's fine. But I do think that if JB Bickerstaff is going to, you know, the the Cavs are going to take this game personally. They these games, they want to win these games. And if he's going to try and give his team the best chance possible to win, he's going to say, "Look, the Knicks are going to create 10 plus extra possessions on the offensive glass. We need to mitigate that through turnovers." And if the Knicks are going to win this game, I think our ball handlers have to be up to the task and they need to be secure with the ball, which they haven't been through three games. See, that's, that's what I was looking for, Jeff. That's the, that's the, the, the optimism on the Cavs side that I was trying to, <laughs> I was hope. but no, I, I think that's a great point. I, I think that's probably how they have to play it is pressure. The ball handlers, like don't let them go one-on-one. Hopefully they throw crazy wild passes and turnovers, especially when DiVincenzo's out there. Um, yeah, I think that's probably how they'll play it. I think the Knicks should be able to be fine. To me, pressure, doubling, like, you know, playing really high on pick and rolls. Like, I I don't like any of it. I think it just makes your offense too easy. And for me, if the Knicks just make the simple pass, and I think Tibbs has to have them prepared for this, if they just make the simple pass, they're going to get all the open threes that they got against the Pelicans and more. And guys like DiVincenzo and Quickly and Grimes, they're not going to just keep missing those open threes. Like they're going to. So I think it's possible they play that strategy and we see the Knicks just light them up from three, like completely light them up from three. Um, If the Knicks are shooting well, they're going to win both games. If their shooting is just off, you know, continues to be streaky and they continue to, you know, make terrible passes and throw the ball away. There's a chance they go one and one. I, if they lose both games, I'm in full-blown panic mode. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care about small sample size. I, I don't care that it's five games into the season. If they lose both games against a, a Cavs team without Mobile, um, without Allen and without Garland, to me, that's 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 panic mode. So um, I think I think it's a great point. I think that might be what Bickerstaff tries, but I think if the Knicks just stay calm and hit their threes, I think they'll be okay. And it's, again, part of the panic will come from it's not just one and four. It would be one and four headed to Milwaukee with a pissed off Milwaukee team who just got bashed in the head by the Hawks. Yep. Like, <laughs> um, speaking of shooting luck, like Damian Lillard was like one for 30 in that game or something insane. Like, yeah, don't see that. Um, I, well, I he's one say, for 12. He only took 12 shots, so he wasn't very aggressive. I, I, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I got to say, and this could be, seen as insane but i actually like how we match up against milwaukee which is part of the reason that i don't feel as strongly as you do that two and oh needs to be like what happens like i don't think i don't think the next knicks are dead to go two and two or even three and one in this stretch if they lose one of the games to cleveland like i think they can let me let me segue us to that to that game because I, I think we talked about the Cavs and as much as we're probably going to and and I think our, our views on that game is are pretty clear for the for the Bucks. Um, the Bucks game will be actually also the first in season tournament game for the Knicks as well. 
So, you know, like, like Jeff just alluded to the bucks are one and one at the time of us recording this Dame had a crazy cold shooting game, uh, in the lo- in the loss against the Hawks, the Hawks blitz them in the first half, um, with Jeff's guy, Jalen Johnson, uh, hitting two of three threes, which had my eyes wide open. Um, but yeah, is he I, really, is he really my guy now? Is that just what your guy now? Because- yeah, that's, that's what I'm going with <laughs> your guys, Jalen Johnson. Everybody knows my guys, Lowry marketing, and we're just going to follow them the course of the season. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, yeah. I like your guy. I like your guy a little bit better than mine. Be <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I, 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 I like, yeah, I, I would just say I don't expect to see that kind of showing from Dame against the Knicks. I, I, I think Grimes is going to have to get into him and try to bother him as much as possible. Um, but he seemed kind of passive in that game. I watched some of the highlights. I didn't watch the full thing, but he seemed kind of passive. So I expect him to come out gunning. And I would just love to hear your perspective on why you think um, the Knicks match up well with Milwaukee with this new look Bucks. Um, Because I think that we have answers for their two best players. I think Tibbs, like I know the Knicks lose close games to Milwaukee a lot, but I think Tibbs is as suited as any coach in the league to build, except for maybe outside of Boston, because Boston has some sort of voodoo magic going on when they play Milwaukee. Um, I think Tibbs is as well suited as any coach in the league to build a a scheme to not stop Giannis, but slow him down. Uh, I think the Knicks always make his life kind of tough when they play him. He's not getting to the spots. Um, And I think the Knicks have proven that they have multiple options throughout Damian Lillard. Um, Lillard's going to get his, he's going to hit ridiculous shots, but he loves shooting pull-up threes off of screens. And that requires exploiting bad screen navigators he's not going to face any bad screen navigators. So like the, he's not going to just walk into open pull up threes, even with Mitchell Robinson and drop coverage. The thing that kind of scares me the most is I don't know if you've noticed this or how much Milwaukee you watch. Brooke Lopez is not swingy as, as swingy at all. Like he's a 36 to 40% three point shooter who is just that every, like almost every game. And that is, is kind of scary because one of the things we struggle the most with is stretch fives. And so if he is as consistent as he seemed, you know, not only this season, but last season, he was great in the playoffs last year. Like I, I know Milwaukee, I know it's weird to say, cause they lost as a one seed to an eight seed, but it wasn't Brooke Lopez's fault. That's for sure. Um, that, that kind of scares me, but I, I just, I think that their lack of depth is going to be more troublesome than is being given credit for right now. I think that I think that they're still figuring it out. It's early in the season, as we've seen, even with New York's continuity, even when you're just changing, trying to adjust, tweak the scheme that you're working on, there's early, you know, problems. That's just going to happen. Well, the Bucks are trying to infuse a superstar into their team. So I don't think they're going to be operating at peak you know skill or whatever there um so yeah i just i see the knicks having a good shot in milwaukee and i think i think that's a game they can win so i think uh i like that description of brooke lopez as as not swingy i've not heard that before but basically suggesting that there's low variance in terms of his shooting performances um from three yeah i need to i need to remember that not everybody spent 
15 years playing poker professionally but like when you're when that's what you do you know like people ask how you're doing you say you're on like a downswing or an upswing so ah, I see. swingy swingy is just like lingo but yeah i'm glad that's- i'm glad at least I'm glad at least you picked up on it. <laughs> That's really helpful terminology, actually, because there should be a name for that. Or there's something at least we like we refer to it as because a guy like, for instance, Emmanuel Quickly, like last year was very swingy. Like he would go through a three game stretch and he's shooting like 70 percent from three and then a four game stretch and he's shooting like 15 percent from three. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm very glad to see Quickly's gotten that out of his system. Definitely. Didn't shoot <laughs> one, definitely didn't shoot one for 12 from three the last two games. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Quickly. That's that's behind them now we all know that uh no i think i think that's those are some good points there's definitely going to be some adjustment um you know growing pains for the bucks and it's good to get them early i think as well i think i do think they're going to make things difficult for brunson and, and and honestly something i've been thinking about is that i love grimes in the starting lineup with brunson i think it's you know he offsets brunson's weaknesses on the defensive end uh, provides the spacing that they desperately need. But something that does bother me is that opponents are able to hide their like weaker or smaller defenders on him and they and then put their like two guard or their wing defender on Brunson. And I would really love to see Grimes be more aggressive in those situations, like let's say against Atlanta. So in Atlanta, a couple of times he shot right over the top of Trey from three, uh, a couple of times. And, and I was like, that's awesome. Pull up. If Trey is on you, like you need to exploit him. Like you have to, and and it doesn't have to be by attacking him and, and, and taking it off the dribble and bringing him to the rim, but shoot over him. Like you can do it. You definitely can. He has a high release point. He's taller than Trey, longer than Trey. Like he should be able to do that. So I really, sometimes I'm just concerned um, you know, and because of Brunson's obvious ability to get down into the paint and muscle smaller guards, Grimes is always going to have a solid matchup with a smaller player. Um, you know, aside from a team like Boston, who basically doesn't have any defensive weaknesses at guard. Um, but I guess most teams he's going to. So like, I would love to see him make guys like Trey and Dame work really hard. I don't know if, he is at that stage in his development where he's going to be able to do that. So to me, I almost see this as a quickly game against Milwaukee because I think the the, the quickly and Brunson uh, lineup can work on the defensive end. And I think on the offensive end, they need to make Dame have to think a lot. They need to make Dame work on that end and, to, and, and kind of take advantage of him because I just think that that Dame is going to score. And I agree with you. I think he does a lot of his damage on, you know, against guys who are bad screen navigators Um, guys going, I mean, even if they don't go under, if they go over and try to navigate the screen, if they're kind of like slow or get stuck or die, like you're dead, he's going to hit the three. Um, So I agree with that. But I can, I, can I, uh, can I ask you a question about what you said about Brunson? Yeah. Who is, who are the bucks putting on Brunson? Like that's um, one thing that nobody's talking about. The, 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 the Bucks defense is now all like, I think it could be a rough RJ game because the, unless RJ shoots well, which is fine. Like, I, I don't mean that as criticism RJ. I just mean the Bucks have Giannis and Brooke Lopez waiting at the rim. Like mm-hmm, that's, mm-hmm. that doesn't, yeah. that's not, that's not good for RJ and, and the, the shots he likes to get to when he's most comfortable. But yeah, Jalen Brunson doesn't live at the rim. So who is stopping him from getting to the spots that he wants to get to in pick and roll? Like why can't Jalen Brunson just have his breakout game of the season that we've been waiting on in that game? That's a great point. I mean, 
I imagine it's going to be a lot of Connaughton. I imagine they will also put Middleton on him. Um, are those guys equipped to stop Brunson? I don't know. No, I don't think so. But I, I think they can slow him down a little more than than we might give them credit for. But yeah, if, if he is gets there, a, his... is there a different Connaughton that I don't know about? Or are you talking about Pat Connaughton? <laughs> it's Pat. Con- Pat Connaughton's decent defensively. Planet Pat Connaughton, the Brunson stopper. <laughs> What is happening right now? I feel like yeah, I feel like you're doing a bit, but I can't I can't tell. Like Connaughton, Connaughton is solid defensively. He's six. Am I being Am I being racist right now? Is that Is that what's <laughs> happening right now? Am I just like assuming he's he's terrible at defense and like because look of up that, some of like, his look up some of his metrics. Look up some of his. I mean, we don't have the greatest. Obviously, you know, we don't have the greatest like defensive impact metrics there, but they're they're solid. They give you a sense of defensive impact. And and Connaughton's not terrible. He's had some bad seasons defensively but overall he's been okay um and just his size you know like i don't think he's a good off-ball defender and that's like part of the reason why his uh his impact metrics aren't as high as they could be but i think he's okay and he has some size on brunson i think to to me most teams just want to put size on brunson um and i do think we'll see a lot of middleton on brunson middleton's he's getting up there and he may not be able to keep up with him but we're talking about six six to six nine guys that are going to be guarding Brunson, and and that tends to, to to at least slow him down a little bit. I do think that you're probably right on balance. Like I do think we could see the Brunson eruption game for sure, um, especially if the Knicks get switches on. T- like you were mentioning, they were doing a lot of like screening with Smalls, um, potentially guards and wings doing screening. So we see switches and get and Brunson gets a guy like Beasley on him or or Lillard on him. Like those guys, yeah, we're gonna see a Brunson like 30, 40 point game. Um and but for, yeah, uh, I, for for full transparency, people, Content actually graded out on EPM as a plus defender last year. So I was my <laughs> I guess I was being racist. <laughs> I don't know that it would be if I'd consider that racism, but I would consider it uh, a bias, a bias to, to be fair. Um, but yeah, I, I I don't think I don't think Connaughton's a great defender. To be clear, I'm not saying like yeah, they all they got to do is throw Connaughton at him, and that'll slow that'll shut him down. Like he, <laughs> he's gonna pull a Fred Van Vliet on him and like shut off his water. Like I don't think it's gonna be like that, obviously. But I do think like they're gonna throw guys like Connaughton and Middleton at him. That's the only that's their only hope. What else can they do? Dude, you said on the Schwinn on the podcast we did with Schwinn for Strickland, you brought up Fred Van Vliet's defense, and like I remembered that Van Vliet graded out really well on like impact metrics last season. That's right, right? He was he was yeah. really good last season. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it never occurred to me that like defense was part of the equation because you just look at Van Vliet and you're like. Even more so than quickly, like, you know, like people yeah. look at quickly and they're like, oh, he's too skinny, blah, blah, blah. But Van Vliet just like looks smaller than he is. And it's like, oh, this guy can't possibly. I've been watching. I've watched every Rockets game this season, which like sounds like something they would do in like a third world country prison to torture people <laughs> or something. But no, it's I, like <laughs> I've watched every. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've watched every Rockets Van Vliet hasn't been good offensively at all, but his defense is so good. I can't believe I He's never sick picked on up defense. on that. Yeah. I can't believe it. He like can guard up. Like they had him. He can guard isolate. up on ball. They, he can, he is sick. Yeah. They had him isolated on Andrew Wiggins in the mid post and Wiggins couldn't, couldn't move him off his spot. Couldn't get a good, like, like they were doing the Mark Jackson thing. They were like, Oh, Harrison Barnes go. You've got a mismatch, but it wasn't a mismatch. It was <laughs> like, no, it was Van, Van Vliet. Vliet. Was shutting That's him down. six yeah. foot fire hydrant, Fred Van Vliet, who was the only guy 
in the NBA that I've seen like just be like, yo, Brunson, you're not doing shit. Like, I'm just going to lock you up. Like, he's the only guy that I've seen do that. And we always think it's like, well, the only guys who can shut down Brunson are going to be like wings, you know, guys who are like six, seven or, you know, whatever. But Van Vliet is is a problem just uh, like terms of on ball defense with smaller guards. So, um, but yeah, that, that, that aside, uh, the Milwaukee doesn't have a guy like that. <laughs> um, you know, maybe Crowder could, but yeah, I don't know. They're going to have a tough time guarding Brunson. I agree with you on that. Um, I just think that we're going to see a very aggressive game. And I think that, you know, this being the first, actually, let's talk about that real quick. Do you think this matters to teams, this in-season tournament, this being the first game of the in-season tournament? Um, for those who don't know, the in-season tournament, um, most of the games are going to just be like part of the schedule. Um, they're going to change the court and the jerseys that the teams wear to indicate that this is like an, part of the in-season tournament games. Um, and then some of the standings are going to be uh, calculated a little a little while down, down uh, maybe at the end of the month, I think. Uh, and then whoever wins that tournament is going to play one extra game, the finals for the tournament. So what, uh, a couple of teams are going to be playing 83 games, but, um, for the most part, this is just happening as a part of the part and parcel of the season. So it's going to be like regular games. Today's a Friday game. Um, it's going to count for the standings and towards the in-season tournament. So, um, but yeah, I don't know. Do you think that's going to have any impact on how players play? Do you think they'll play harder? Do you think they'll care about that? Do you think that we're going to see the worst case scenario for the NBA, which would be like, yeah, Dame's going to sit today, like, <laughs> um, which they would, that would be horrible for them. But um, yeah, I'm just curious your thoughts. I think regarding player um, care factor, it's just one of those things that we're not going to know until we know. Um, but I have kind of a hot take regarding the in-season tournament. I think overall it's going to be a huge success. Um, and I and honestly, this court thing that came out today only reaffirms that to me. Because look, I know first of all, I am if you can't tell from watching, you know, all the post games and the first two episodes of this, I am probably one of the least stylish people you'll ever meet. Like I have terrible style. I'm just like, oh my god, I'm just the worst with that stuff. Um, so I probably wasn't as offended as the average person looking at the courts. I'm thinking about it more from a robotic standpoint. And to me, what the NBA had to do to make people care about this in-season tournament was have it stand out from the regular season, was give it, make it clear to people watching that this isn't just another regular season game. These have stakes that are going to matter to the players and you as the as the consumer should care about too. And look, you might not find the courts aesthetically pleasing right away. They might be too jarring to you, these pictures, but one thing they are going to do is grab. They're going to, you're going to immediately know when you're watching a game that this game is different than a regular season game. And so I think that that's a sign that the NBA is invested in making sure that the consumers and the players know that these games matter and matter more than the average regular season game. And it wouldn't surprise me if they have more ideas like this on the back burner that are just going to keep, it's going to be like a snowball and we're going to get to the end of this and we're going to watch these quote unquote playoff games of the in-season tournament, like their actual playoff games. Like I, I know other people don't agree with that, but I actually feel like the in-season tournament is going to end up being a huge success. Yeah, I, I think you'd be a little hard on yourself as far as your, uh, your your design and fashion sense. But I would say, like I, you know, for those who don't know, I, I 
am a graphic designer um, and a visual designer, communications designer. And design is functional. Like design is functional. I love what they're doing with the courts and the jerseys. Like I, you may not, again, like Jeff said, to reiterate, you may like not like them like aesthetically or, or anything like that, but it's functional. And it is going to show you that there is something different attached to this game that you're watching than from all the other, uh, I'm not sure how many, 70 something games that you're, that you're watching for the regular season. Um, so I love the function of it. I actually like how a lot of the courts look. I actually like how the Knicks jerseys look, which is probably like, I'm probably in like the 10% of people who like those jerseys. Um, so I think it'll be cool. I'm just thinking about it from the player perspective. Like are the players going to care more because that's really what's going to make or break it to me. Um, and I, like I said, to me, the worst case scenario is if, you know, the Bucks sit one of their best players on uh, on a TNT game. That's like the first game of the in-season tournament. Um, I don't think they will because that, that'll be really just asking for trouble with the league. But I do think it'll be successful. But I just think how successful it is de- depends on how much the players care. And for those who don't know, there's, there's prize money uh, attached to it. Um, and that's pretty much the only like real incentive for the players is like the prize money and the bragging rights of winning the in-season tournament, which we know social media is going to like clown everybody for like, oh, you care about the in-season tournament. We're going to see so many Pat Bev uh, uh, memes going around for whatever team wins the in-season tournament. But I think I think it, it might matter to them. And I think it will definitely matter to the players who are making a ton of money. And think about it like this. I mean, the some of the prize money, it looks like could be like up to five hundred thousand dollars. If you're on, you know, whatever, uh, 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 a rookie contract and you're making like $4 million and you're talking about you're going to get one eighth of your salary if you win this one game, uh, this one game. <laughs> I mean, I think I think players are going to care about that. I think players are going to care about that. So, um, yeah, it just matters. how. It just we'll, we'll have to see how much um, the star players care about it, I think. I'm going to drop another 20 second hot take. I think that player care factor is kind of overrated. Like, I think this, I think the idea, I, I believe it was a thing five, 10, 15 years ago. I actually think the, that the regular season is pretty high level basketball for the most sake. I'm not saying it's the same as the playoffs, but I think the biggest difference between playoffs and regular season isn't player care factor. And it actually is coaching. And I just think that coaches only have so much time because there's only so many practices. Like I remember Tib said, I forget if it was last season or the year before, like they were coming off some road trip and he was like, yeah, we have three days off before our next home game. The thing I'm most excited about is to get back in the gym because we haven't practiced in like a month, you know, like that's just things like in today's like practice is as devalued as it's ever been because of all the modern uh, technology and the data that says that basically here's how you keep players healthy, you know, like with all the travel, they basically staying healthy through the season is the most important thing. So you don't really get these big in-depth practices where you're, where you're specifically breaking down the matchup that you have. But in the postseason, every single game, you have a practice, you have an, a, a single opponent where you know the ins and outs of what they're doing, like the back of your hand. Every player does, and you're as prepared as you're ever going to be. And I know, to be honest, I don't think that gets talked about enough with Tibbs. Like, I think that's the biggest advantage he has in the regular season is, no, I don't think he does as, as, uh, I, I think he takes it to another level in the playoffs, 
But I think the difference between Tibbs in the playoffs and Tibbs in the regular season is smaller than any other coach in the league. And I think the rest of the coaches are it's harder for them to be prepared for these regular season games because of the lack of practices. Um, so yeah, I actually think the players are going to care and will it be a playoff setting? No, probably not. But I think there will be a little bit more to it than the average regular season game. Yeah. I think, I think that that's a solid, that's, that's a strong take. And I, I agree with it in principle in some ways. Um, the, the way I think player, care factor matters is really like the intensity of the game. I don't think it's going to be playoff intensity, but I do, I could imagine like a level that feels like playoff intensity. So like when I say player care factor, I mean like are guys taking charges that they wouldn't otherwise take Are guys diving for loose balls Are guys like hustling back in transition. Um, when the offense seems to have a breakaway on the off chance that they could affect the shot or get the rebound. If a player misses, like, those kinds of things that I don't think we'd see in a regular, regular season game or, you know, an early season, regular season game, we could see some of that or we could not see some of that. And I think like how that goes is going to, to change things the same way, like in the, in the all-star game, when we saw the Elam ending first be implemented, um, we saw the intensity of those games really crank up towards the end. And it was just like, kind of like fun. I mean, obviously the all-star game is like a joke early on, but we we obviously saw how fundamental a difference it was in terms of how much the players were trying, how much they cared. We won't be able to see that level of a juxtaposition because players are not just like lollygagging during the regular season. But I think we do see a difference in intensity from the regular season in the playoffs. And I think there is an uptick that we will be palatable and noticeable um, by the fans. And that will in turn affect how the fans react. And if the fans are reacting crazy and intensely, we're seeing these different courts, um, these 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 really striking, like you said, Jeff, these striking courts on, uh, that guys are playing on. Fans are being very uh, loud and boisterous and into it. Players seem more intense, taking charges, uh, arguing harder for calls. Um, you know those kinds of things. I do think we can see like a pseudo playoff type intensity, and that would make this a huge success. I guess that's where I'm coming from with it. Um, yeah. Anything you want to add? No, I think you nailed it. That's all I was gonna say. Sweet. Uh yeah, so let's let's talk about our last game uh, that we're gonna cover, our last team really. Um, the Los Angeles Clippers. The Clippers are two and one at the time of this recording. Um, they've been playing really good offensive basketball so far in the top five in offense in this very short season so far. Um, the, my one big takeaway, Paul George looks like he's back to all-star form. Um, he's playing really well. And, you know, they, they I mean, have higher had, MV, MVP form. Like this has been yeah, crazy start. Potentially in, in a, 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 a fringe MVP level for, for Paul George so far. And, and they have had an easier schedule so far. So that's like the, that's kind of like the discount that I'm giving. Like they've played the Blazers and they played the Jazz and uh, I forget the most recent team they've played, but it wasn't a good team. I know. Um, but yeah, so I, the you Blazers, remember? the Blazers was the last because they lost their first game. Or oh, no, they okay. wait, wait, no, that's wrong. They lost. The they Jazz, only lost so. against Utah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. so that was a Lowry game. <laughs> um, yeah, and it, was, I, it had it had the uh, the famous um, 
I don't know if you saw, but like Kawhi went to his knees when Russ took the game winner. Did you see that? No, I didn't. I didn't see that. Oh That's my god, it's no. so funny. I missed that. Uh, yeah, so so Russ like, oh my god, yeah. I can so just imagine played... it. That was hilarious. Yeah, it was so funny. So Kawhi missed a shot down to the Spurs. The Spurs. That's who the, that was yeah, the team they played. Yeah. Um. Kawhi, Kawhi missed a shot down to Russ. Did what Russ does? Just outfought someone for an offensive rebound. And then, like, got the ball, turned around, dribbled towards the perimeter, realized time was kind of running down, and, like, <laughs> shot this crazy fadeaway. And Kawhi, right when the shot went up, went, like, put his hands on his head and dropped to his knees. <laughs> it was so freaking funny. <laughs> I love that. I love that Kawhi couldn't hold back his just his genuine <laughs> reaction to that happening. <laughs> it's, oh, it's that's so- hilarious. Um, but, yeah, so, I, I mean – yeah, like I said, okay, they played Portland, they played Utah, and they played San Antonio. <clears throat> they came away from those games two and one, lost to Utah in a big Lowry marketing game. I don't know. I don't I don't have too many takeaways besides I don't I think this is gonna be tough for the Knicks. Um anytime they play the Clippers with these two wings, I think they, they struggle with that because they don't necessarily have the size. Um DiVincenzo may be uh you know a difference maker potentially from from the situations that they had against this team last year, but I don't think DiVincenzo is really big enough to really affect a guy like Paul George, especially when he's playing at this level. So I, I think it'll be a, a tough game for the Knicks. Um, yeah. Do you have any initial thoughts or, or broad takeaways? Yeah. The two wings, like that's just, that is a nightmare for them because when Grimes is your best defender, it's already a hard enough time when the opposing team is a taller wing. Like, I mean, we saw it with, um, Brandon Ingram like you know we talked about last week neither of us are in a vacuum compared to the average NBA fan super uh, the highest on Brandon Ingram but he gave Quentin Grimes work like that was that was not RJ did a way better job on Brandon Ingram than uh, Grimes did and I think that's going to be the case for wings like I would rather have RJ on Tatum Uh, I would rather have RJ on George and Kawhi and now, like, I just think that, and now you're telling me the Clippers have two of these guys like that. And I'm not saying that Grimes is like a below average defender against these guys or has no chance. I just think that it's a tough matchup for him. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I mean, beyond that, um, I Terrence Mann, I think is still going to be out. Uh, I mean, obviously it's, it's a ways away. It's, it's almost a week away as we're recording this, but man hasn't played yet this season. Russ is Russ. Like uh, again, not the biggest Russ fan overall, but look, his energy, the way he fights for offensive rebounds with how lackadaisical the Knicks can get like Russ is the type of player to exploit that. And then also, if you're telling me that RJ and Grimes are going to be on George and Kawhi, like, okay, so that puts Brunson on Russ. I, that's not good. Yeah, that doesn't so, sound good. No. Yeah, that's 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 not good. So okay, so what do you do? Do you do you put Randall and do you, do you get Randall into the equation and put him on one of Kawhi or George? And then put RJ on the other one and have Grimes guard Russ. That that's, that's my that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking Randall's yeah. on Kawhi. I don't think it's going to be RJ on Kawhi. I think RJ is yeah. probably going to be either matched up with George or um or Russ. 
so for the Knicks to win this game, and I'll say this, if if they were neutral courts, I would actually feel better about the Bucks game than the Clippers game. That's how like matchup from a matchup standpoint, I feel much better about, about the Bucks than the Clippers. If the Knicks are gonna win this game, it needs to be a bench win because the Clippers' depth is their weakness. I know they have Norman Powell off the bench, but like they're giving serious minutes to like Robert Covington right now because because Terrence Mann's out. Their their five through nine is not a strong point for this team. So if you look at the lineup data, and again, small sample size, it's early. The Knicks bench has not been what they were the last few seasons. And we hope it gets right against Cleveland and it starts to build momentum into the Bucks and the Clippers game. But if it continues to stall and continues to struggle as they infuse DiVincenzo into this lineup, it the Clippers game needs to be a bench or excuse me, a get right game for the bench unit. And I think that that's when they can, they can start to thrive. We, we know quickly, we know DiVincenzo, we know Hart, we know all these guys are capable of impacting individually, but it would be nice to see them have some of those, you know, crazy impactful games as a unit that we saw so regularly last season. Yeah. And I, I agree with you. I think the bench is going to be the term determining factor of like, not even whether the Knicks win this game, but whether they're like in this game at the end is, is how I'm viewing it. One thing that's a little bit uh, makes me a little bit pessimistic is that the Clippers, I believe have four days of rest before this game too. So uh, they, they play against the Lakers and then they have four days off and then they play the Knicks. So they're going to be well rested. And then not only that, they don't play a back-to-back the next day and they stay in New York and play the, the, um, the nets uh, two days later. So there's not even a reason for that. These guys won't be able to play like not big minutes, but big minutes for early regular season game. Uh, so I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how much the, the bench is going to factor in, but I agree with you that the, the Clippers, if you're talking about the Clippers, their weakness is gotta be their bench. I'm not a big Norman Powell guy. I, I think he had his best years in Toronto and I don't think that he's reached that level, um, recently. And, um, even a guy like Batum has been pretty solid for them, but uh, the rest of them, eh, they're, they're, they're kind of, they, I think that is their weakness. That is where you get them. But I think that if anybody if anybody wants a laugh, go look at XJ. Find XJ the XJ video of him breaking down the six man of the year candidate last <laughs> from last year. Because like yeah, because Norman Powell, you know, was in you're that you're you're like you're like one of the you're like one of the nicest guys ever. But I could tell that you were trying so hard to hide your disdain for the fact that this was even a conversation. Like, like anytime you brought up Norman Powell and quickly in the same conversation you were, I could just see you wanting to be like, why the fuck? Like, why is this a discussion? What, what are we doing right now? <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I can't lie. I, I do not think Norman Powell should have been anywhere near the six man of the year conversation last <laughs> year. That was the most bizarre thing to me that he was like a part of the dialogue. Like, well, you know, what about Norman Powell? He's been scoring a lot off this. Like, okay. I, we, what, what conversation are we having here? Um, the season is going as planned, by the way. Malcolm Brockton is off to such a nice start. He will not sniff the six man of the year conversation, no, putting up matter. being more impactful in Portland than in Boston. It won't, it, and it won't matter. It won't matter at all. <laughs> I hope he has his best season of his career, like by far off the bench. And then I want, I'm going to go to all Celtics fans and just ask them who they think the six man of the year is and, and actually rank them. Like Brogdon will be like 
10th. It's like, no, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not much for Brogdon this year. He's but. just like not impacting winning as much as he was last season because <laughs> yeah. his teammates are you know like exactly exactly yeah honestly that might be a uh, that might be a argument that they use but um i can't i can't believe that the knicks ended up better on the court with quickly last season than brogdon than the celtics were with brogdon on the court because like people would always say to me like no like brogdon's hurt like in the net on off by his team being so good and i'm like yeah but he also has way better teammates. They should be better with him on the court than the exactly. Knicks are with quickly on the court. That does, what you're saying doesn't make any sense. If no, his teammates it, are so good, it doesn't add up. What, <laughs> I, uh, it, it add up and it's, it's that conversation was like, probably since I've been involved in like, you know, NBA media for, for lack of a better term, the most annoying discussion I've ever been a part of. And trust me, we're, you know, we're in the Knicks, fan community on social media and this was the number one by far for me annoying conversation that i've ever been a part of the argument from malcolm brogdon over quickly at six man of the year so that that has given me trauma flashbacks for sure um but yeah so norman powell won't won't be in the conversation this year and that's why you can definitely exploit the the, the clippers bench but i think it's going to be tough and i think paul george and choir are going to play 30 plus minutes so I, 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 you know, I tend to agree with you. I think they might have a better chance at the Bucks game than they do at the Clippers game. So we'll see, uh, kind of like to, to wrap it up. Do you have any kind of thoughts or what you think the Knicks will do over the course of these four games in terms of their record? They're going to go, I think they're going to go two and two. And I think I'll be happy that they went two and two. I think the only way I see myself not being happy if they, I think the only way I see myself not being happy if they go in two and two is if they go two and oh against the Cavs and it's just clear like the Cavs are not the same without Allen and Garland. Like it almost feels like, oh, the Knicks just caught schedule wins and then the Knicks do stupid stuff against the Bucks. And like it's the same thing. And I was thinking about this, like, um, because your uh John uh of KFS brought up the 2013-2014 Knicks and how they started really slow and then ended strong and like that season. And I was thinking about how much how things happened creates biases for us, if that makes sense. Like the Knicks just went one and two. If they went 0-2 in their first games and then won the last one decisively and we were talking about this and we had the momentum, you know, they were coming off a win. I feel like vibes would be way higher than they are with them, you know? So like the order that things happen create biases, but I don't think this would be creating a bias. I wouldn't feel great about going two and two, but clearly not being up to the quality of competition that the Bucks and Clippers are. I want the Knicks to be up to that challenge. And even if that means they just split the Cleveland series because okay, they lost a road game and Donovan Mitchell went nuts, but then they also split the Bucks and the Clippers games and play those two teams close. I would still, I would, I would feel really good about that. I agree with you as far as like the way that they get to the record matters more than the record itself. I do think that I also see them kind of going two and two. I think that 
I, unfortunately, I do think they'll win both of the Cavs games and lose both the Bucks and Clippers games. But I do. I, I also agree. I hope that those are close games. I hope that they can play with both of those teams and demonstrate that they can play with both of those teams the same way that they did with the Celtics. And that Celtics loss didn't feel as bad um, as as it could have if they if they played the same way that they did in the first half and in the second half. So yeah, I, I I think two and two. I would sign up for it. I think that's what they'll do. Um, if they beat either of the Bucks and the Clippers, I will be ecstatic, and that would be really tremendous. So I think I think that's what I'm looking at. So, um, yeah, I, I think I think we're coming to the end. But yeah, this was a great conversation for sure. If you're listening or watching right now on YouTube, please like the video. Um, please rate if you're listening to the podcast, either on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. We're finally on Apple Podcast. Good news. Uh, we got our, our technical glitches uh, uh, ironed out. So, yeah, please subscribe anywhere you're listening. Like I mentioned, we uh, last time we are doing weekly podcasts that are going to drop every Tuesday. And we will also be interviewing amazing guests once a month. So, yeah, uh, we're really excited about that. And, um, yeah, on YouTube, please leave us a comment with, comment with your thoughts. Any last things that you want to finish up with, Jeff? Uh, thanks, to everyone, for listening. That's, you know, made it to the end of this. We are trying to cut down the length, but as you can tell, we're kind of just talking to people who get along really well. And to me, that's like, I don't know. I, I enjoy the time we spend on here. So, and I think that's the most important thing, but uh, yeah, we'll quote unquote, try to do better to cut down the length, but I hope you enjoy, <laughs> I, I, ho- I hope you, en- I hope you enjoyed it this long nonetheless. Yeah. Yeah. From like a podcasting strategy perspective, it's not ideal for us to have two hour pods, but from a enjoyability perspective, it's fun for us to just talk Nick's for a long time. So, you know uh, um, what I hope to do is to add some, um, some uh, uh, bookmarks, um, time timestamps, I mean, in terms of just being able to like jump around to the things that you want to hear about. So hopefully I'll be able to do that for this episode. And moving forward, we will try to cut down a little bit, but hopefully you enjoyed the conversation and how long it went. So um, yeah, for Jeff, uh, I'm XJ and uh, this is Hot Hand Theory. Later. <laughs>